teams oftentimes lack the like sort of like the orientation to judge whether they're actually on the right track. And so if you want to stay clear of like output metrics, like numbers of feature produced and velocity, and you can't really connect your day-to-day -day actions to company level impacts, question remains, of course, well, what can you use? And I think that right between those two elements, there's the sweet spot where outcomes sit. Project A podcast. Hi, welcome to a new episode of the Project A podcast. Today, we want to talk about building what really matters in product management. Today, I have a very, very special guest with me. Um, his name is Tim Herbig. He works as a product management coach and consultant. He's been in product management for already 10 years, uh, working as a head of product, uh, ranging from industries, from publishing to social networking to enterprise software. What he is really driven by is creating products that change the behaviors of customers. And what he observed in his day-to-day -day work is that most teams more or less lack the autonomy and freedom to really understand the user's problem to build products that make a difference. And um, Tim itself is on a mission to enable product teams to become the best version of themselves. Hi, Tim. Hi, Tamar. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Um, in preparation to our talk, I ask you if you can give me some kind of numbers of, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that, that tells me a little bit uh, about your experience. And the answer that you gave me was, you know, Tamara, this is an output metric. I'm not really sure if this really makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. Can you just like quickly explain not only to me, but to our audience what do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. Uh, of course, obviously, you're putting me on the spot that I try to avoid, like because I don't have to brag. I'm not the Marty Kagan uh, type of caliber who can brag about thousands of Silicon Valley clients yet. So this was my, my cheap excuse, so to say, to turn into word outputs. Um, but in all seriousness, so I think the, so. the main idea is because we, we talk so much about all these terms. Um, the thing you oftentimes see is that basically the success product teams get measured by is oftentimes derived by how fast they are able to ship a feature, how many features they are shipping, uh, what's the amount of story points they're able to cram into a sprint, uh, if their velocity is constantly improving and all that sort of stuff. And I think the interesting bit about that is especially about like number of features shipped or velocity. I mean, this is stuff ultimately we have made up as product teams um, because ultimately our customers don't really care that much about your sprint goal and whether you were able to keep it. Basically, they just care about whether you are able to solve a problem for them and ideally the most important problem. And if you're not clear about that, meaning what's the what's the actual problem you're trying to solve and which change in behavior you want mm -hmm. to or even have to create for your customers or your users, um, it doesn't matter in which at which cadence or velocity you churn out new features or how often you meet your sprint goal. Because then you're just producing things for the sake of it, which really doesn't change a thing for the company. Makes sense. So um, as I know that there's a lot of discussion about going away from outputs into outcomes and creating impacts. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. I think those, uh, and, and I'm guilty of that in the past as well, of like interchangeably using those terms as they suited me. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, we're totally nailing the impact this week. And next week, we're going to focus on the outcome then. 
And um, it took me a while to get some more clarity, at least for myself and the, the companies or the clients I work with, at least trying to establish a shared understanding of what these terms mm. represent when I work with them, and then sort of like reassess their way of working and what you're actually trying to achieve. And so the basically the, the distinction which, ha which has worked for, well for me in the past is that I like to speak of an impact whenever I talk about those big company level sort of like metrics which express the health of a company and this might depend on the on the department you're working in or at which time of the year you're currently working but most often you see things like revenue overall customer satisfaction user churn uh, website visits all that sort of stuff which are really like like those overarching metrics which can rarely be changed or influenced by just one product or one team it has like all the company's efforts have to come together to change this metric which is why it's oftentimes so difficult to ask an individual product team to judge the, their success of what they're producing based on such an impact metric mm -hmm. because very rarely anything you're doing as a team can like directly impact a company's bottom line maybe in the very early days but as soon as you mature a bit more this gets harder And so due to that, teams oftentimes lack the like sort of like the orientation to judge whether they're actually on the right track. And so if you want to stay clear of like output metrics, like numbers of feature produced and velocity, and you can't really connect your day-to-day -day actions to company level impacts, question remains, of course, well, what can you use? And I think that right between those two elements, there's the sweet spot where outcomes sit. And I think the... Uh, the best, the most fitting definition I've heard so far about outcomes stems from Josh Seiden, who described it as uh, a change in behavior, which uh, a change in human behavior, which ultimately helps the business thrive. And I think this is something which resonates with lots of people and is makes it a bit easier to transition this concept into practice. Sounds interesting. Before we dive deeper into that topic, how did you? What was the moment where you thought about, okay, I need to be a little bit more precise on the different outputs, outcomes, and impacts? Did you have some kind of like moment or situation where you said, like, okay, this was the trigger um, to think deeper about it? Um, I'm not sure if it's this one moment. It's like certainly there's a differentiation between like where I worked as an in-house head of product or product manager, where I really, in the, especially in the early days of my career, like after getting my my certified scrum product owner certificate and all that stuff and i felt like cool if i'm just like if i if i meet my sprint goal every week I will, i'm a successful product manager and if i um squeeze enough story points in the, in the next sprint i'm a successful po as well and if i meet the deadlines as well and so over time it took me a bit longer especially when you work in bigger companies it's easy to really believe this idea of like the velocity of churning out features is something which is success because you're so disconnected from the actual like company's bottom line Uh, and whenever I worked in smaller companies, it became more apparent to me when I led smaller units or teams. Um, but I won one like breakthrough moment, so to say, when, when I was uh, when I was working with another client in one of my first consulting roles was uh, where I sat in the room and I tried to shift the conversation with the, the, the team lead of the client towards why are we always discussing deadlines and individual features. And he basically then ultimately ended the discussion with the words, look, my incentive, uh, my bonus is tied to the number of products we will put out by the end of the year. And this for me, like sort of was the main aha moment for like, okay, so like I don't need to, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense to talk about outcomes, customer behavior or understanding user problems, because all what matters in this company, at least for this department is the number of products being built. 
And this mm-hmm. for me was then the main example, like this is a, this is an output organization and everything else I will try to do to shift the conversation to uh, yeah anything outcome related will ultimately fail because the, the, basically the, the whole, the system of the company is set up in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. But I mean, like on the one side, you're saying that ideally you're going to focus on outcomes because mm-hmm. this is on the one side, let's say um, measurable, um, which an impact metric may not be in that case. Um, and of course, outputs are something that just like probably counting the wrong numbers, at yeah. least to this mm-hmm. one. Um, do you just believe that you should, as a product manager, focus solely on outcome? Or how would you balance the different kind of KPIs and levels there? I think that's an interesting question. Um I, and I would be curious uh, after like thinking out loud what you what you uh, have to say about that because I think of course this everybody's favorite product management answer it depends right uh, it depends on <laughs> the on the company environment you work in right um, yeah. like what what is ultimately be considered the gold standard or the main success criteria in your company I'll, I believe ultimately I mean your job as a product manager as a product team is to to build things which solve customer problems so the business can thrive. And so uh, whatever the, your company defines a thriving business is something which probably has to inform your actions first and foremost. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe that probably if your company is like really focused on like meeting those deadlines and um, and those, those those output metrics and, and you have sort of arrived at this revelation of like, hey, I want to focus on outcomes, you can't do 180 degree pivot overnight, right? You can't just say, no, I don't care about all those things out of, out of a sudden. Uh, and I'm not only will focus on the outcome metrics. So I believe that it that it's more healthy to look at the outcome metrics on a mm-hmm. scale of like saying when you weekly or bi-weekly re- revisit them or like evaluate your success, for example, looking back at a quarter. I believe that their outcome metrics tell you the, the, the real story. And I think the big mm-hmm. challenge there for teams will be to pick the right outcome metric. Because as I said, mm-hmm. Uh, the outcome metric should should sort of like give you an indicator of whether you're on the right track. So it has to be something which actually moves within a reasonable amount of time. So if you pick a metric which only changes like nine months down the road, it's not a big it's not a big help. It won't be a big help. Mm-hmm. So, so sounds sounds good. Um, how do I see that one? It's, I mean, I think there is a value in all of these metrics, right? Um, like if you focus on output metrics. What I like about output metrics is that at least this gives you a sense about your own process efficiency, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like um, making sure that you are, and I'm not saying, you know, like you should, you know, like deliver more features and more features are better. This is mm-hmm. not what I'm looking for. Um, what I would say is that um, focusing on this metric. Um, helps also to understand about the um, general effectiveness and efficiency of your own company and your own environment. Totally. Um, but I totally agree that this should not be, let's say, a leading KPI that drives my business and my decision-making process because this ultimately doesn't help me to do the right decisions. Um, and then we're coming to the two other metrics, and I, and I found it quite um, challenging sometimes to balance these two. Um, why? Because on the one side, I believe in outcome metrics because this is something that you can boil down to the effectiveness of the product team itself. So you, let's say, build a feature that, that creates a high outcome so you can ideally see and, and prove that your actions more or less take, take place and have an effect. 
Um, but sometimes there is a lot of features in my backlog that are not really creating any outcome right away. It will create outcome later. And um, I'd rather than push some impact metrics, even if it can't be measurable. Mm -hmm. So what I'm looking for always is to have a very, very good balance between what you like consider outcome and, and impact. Um, and not only focusing on the current outcome and impact, but also on future outcomes and impacts. Because a lot of actions that I'm doing right now is probably not going to have any effect right away, but it, you know, like it enables other features, possibilities, yeah. tools, reaching new markets, uh, and so on and so forth to, to grow your business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I think the important, if I may jump in, I think the, the good point you're making, I think what's important for the companies to do is like to create an environment where to also acknowledge like, look, this team is investing in short-term output actions, which will down the road contribute to bigger metric. And we won't, and we will judge their success accordingly, right? To not just yes. like mix those yes. things like, hey, uh, sorry, exactly. you didn't move the needle this quarter, so you failed. We're like, hey, I thought we agreed on, on a different path one now. Yeah, just like it, it reminds me of a company that I was working in and um, that one person uh, back in the days, the product managers wanted to prove that he has a super high um, efficiency in his team. Mm -hmm. And then he came up with a list of, look, this is what we've created in uh, the last, let's say, quarter mm -hmm. and came up with a huge list of, let's say, tickets, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And um, the, the funny thing behind that one was that, right, first of all, my thought was, okay, every ticket that you're adding to the code is adding complexity, mm -hmm. which makes your future development speed lower. This is one thing. Yeah. Then I thought, okay, you know, the just like the sheer amount of tickets doesn't matter at all because I'm not sure if you built the right things. Yeah. Um, but what I also observed, um, and this was even more interesting for me, was that these numbers had a huge um, effectiveness, if I can say that one, to some of the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were just like impressed. Yeah. And said like, okay, you're right. That's absolutely, we are there on the right track. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and let me bring it back again to, to your comment that you uh, that you mentioned. So like, okay, it's an outcome metric and I want to say that. Wouldn't you also use output metrics in order to justify um, what you're doing just in order to get room for the things that really matter? Or wouldn't you use it? <laughs> so you, you're saying like to, to get stakeholders off my back, I would try to yeah, exactly. like calm them down in the short term of saying, look, we're busy. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, no, I think not it's, we're busy, but you know, no, it was like, no, we, we're, we're on it. <laughs> look at the back. <laughs> I think it's a good, it's a good, uh, that's a really good question. I believe that again, this ties back to this, to this cultural situation you might be in. And if like, mm -hmm. if that's what you have to do, like following this mantra, like do whatever it takes. And if that's what you have to do, I think the I think the biggest danger is I see is to getting lost on the output metrics um, and thinking you're doing outcomes. I think if you're sort of are available to stay focused on changing behaviors uh, and like um, and do it like knowingly accept this compromise on having mm -hmm. an output focused discussion. I think it's I think it's not that worse, right? I think the, I think I see the bigger threat from not being aware that you're caught up in this hamster wheel of chasing outputs. Um, yeah. If you're aware of that, I think it's not all hope is lost. I think the big question is then like, do you want to continue working in this company if you originally believe in a different way of working? 
I, I totally agree with that one. Um, and uh, I hope we can elaborate later a little bit on how to change the culture to move away from output to outcome. But let's let's quickly have a look first on the current state of quo of your experience. I mean, you're working as a consultant coach, so you're seeing um, tons of different companies and stages. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is kind of like a development going a little bit from, you know, like fast feature development, yeah. from feature retest to simplification, and now back again a little bit to creating output and outcomes. Like from your experience, how mature would you say are the companies that you're working is, and how would you rate them? Um, are most companies still moving straight away, you know, like from business goal to feature idea to implementation, or how how do you see that one right now? I think that um, so I would say in, in over overall in general, I think way more companies are still jumping straight to solutions and trying to justify that those contribute to a business impact. Um, I think that's the general, still the general trend, right? I think mm-hmm. those people who who are in the same bubble as we are, who start to talk more about outcomes, they are obviously have matured a bit more. And what's oftentimes the case is that people reaching out to me and asking to to collaborate or to work together, they have already sort of like realized: look, uh, we're built. We might be good at delivery. We're we're good at shipping things. We're not that good at figuring out whether we're building the right thing. So they have already a certain awareness of, hey, there is something else uh, we probably should be doing before we start building a feature. We're not doing it yet. We want to learn how to do it. Uh, so it's more like this implicit hunch, like, hey, something is missing. We're not aware mm-hmm. of doing. It's rarely that explicit that someone says, hey, help us focus on outcomes. Right? Um, it's like it's more an implicit, yeah, an implicit feeling they have that something might be missing. Do you have some kind of number where say like, okay, uh, you know, like um, 80% of the companies that I'm working together with are like still in the very old mode? Um, yeah, I, I think how, I, I, probably, I probably have a bit of a bias because those people reaching out to yeah. me are already like a bit past the super old sure. mode, right? So, um, but I recently had a very interesting situation where I work with, a, with an IoT company who had its own internal product development team and they had sort of like solutions teams which work with their clients in the B2B space. And mm-hmm. the interesting part was that for this workshop we did for the for this training, uh, obviously the product team was present, but also the solution team was present because the idea was, of course, obviously the solutions team is already sitting right next to clients and getting all this input, what the clients want in terms of feature and like feed mm-hmm. that into the product team. And the product team got a bit tired of like only chasing features. And this was, of course, a very interesting, like more systematic approach of like, hey, if we can actually educate the solutions team about starting with asking why and trying to understand the actual change we want to create, uh, this will help the whole organization and the product team trying to be less busy. Right? So this was super mm-hmm. interesting. And of course, it wasn't about like turning solution-focused consultants into biggest outcome product discovery advocates throughout two days, but just making mm-hmm. them aware of like, hey, embrace the uncertainty of not knowing what you want to do and trying to get to the bottom of it and not jump on every articulated feature idea first. And this was like a mm-hmm. seemingly a small win, but the more I think of it, the more like interesting was it to have the solutions team um, in the workshop, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's um, What I see a lot is that product teams are, let's say, spending most of the times, let's say over 80% of their time, um, focusing on product delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what I also see uh, over the last couple of years is that's a way stronger push now to go into discovery. Yeah. 
And one question that I get asked quite a lot is, how can I get started? <laughs> how can I, I mean, I have tons of tickets. My sprint starts next week. I need to prepare the same thing. I know it's important to focus yeah. on product discovery. Um, how, how can I get room for it? How can I get started? How can I, can I create an awareness of that one? Yeah. What, what are the things that you recommend people, you know, like just, I mean, you need to start somewhere, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you typically don't start big, say like, okay, now cut off half of my time and just like <laughs> not doing what I've done so far and yeah. just like make the room and, and get started there. Absolutely. How would you recommend to start? Again, I can pull up the, it depends, it depends answer, which is always a good fallback, right? And to buy some time here. I think that, <laughs> I think that there's one thing you mentioned earlier of like, Pulling, actually having a discussion with your superior or even the even the C level of like, hey, let's look at causation, correlation of what we have shipped so far and how our metrics have been evolving. So trying to make like, if you have the hunch, or if you can even even better, if you have like any kind of proof that let's say all mm -hmm. the features you shipped in the last year, the usage has dropped as soon as the marketing campaigns have trailed off, uh, features are no longer used, users are churning or whatever. If you can find any, like I would really look for those. Uh, small pieces of evidence which can sort of like spark the discussion around hey we're doing lots of things we might not be doing the right mm. things right so i think you have to bring some kind of some kind of data to the table um obviously this can't always be quantitative data like very few companies are in luxurious uh, luxury position to have significant statistically significant quantitative data to make that case uh it might be even just qualitative data right like i think it takes fairly little time to have like a 30 minute informed discussion with your core customers and to just like let them tell you how they work use your product yeah. i think that's like some easy small this is why i'm also a big believer of like why product managers should own parts of the research and don't just rely on um the user detection designer does that or they have a user research department i think a certain familiarity with asking questions the right way uh, is extremely powerful especially when you have limited resources so look for those small pieces of data to actually get the conversation started, to get some kind of buy-in of like, hey, uh, can we just please, it's, I don't, maybe just saying, hey, I don't, I realize we can't move away from gunshot feature roadmaps like uh, overnight, but maybe let's just only add two features there and let's spend the rest of the time digging deeper, right? And I think this is like, maybe uh, if, if you're lucky, uh, this is, uh, this could be a good starting point. Also uh, revisiting with your, with your boss, how goals are set, how does success for this team look like? Can you actually get to a point where like, hey, if you're stuck on output metrics, fine, but maybe can we at least agree on like six six user interviews conducted per week as an output metric, which would I would argue is still an output metric, but at least it's one which buys you the capacity to, to, to look into something else than your backlog, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the sort of like an, almost something like an end state uh, you could dream of would be, Instead of, and I know this, of course, like to to be afraid that the development team runs out of work, God forbid, uh, this um, unholy event, that the developers are no longer busy. Uh, I think the easiest answer to that would be, maybe not the easiest, but one of the most interesting is like to get started together, right? So that it's okay that the development team might not be that busy during the first part of the product discovery. Um mm -hmm. And involve them rather and involve the whole team and get them on board doesn't mean that they have to write the interview questionnaire but make them regularly participate in interview observations involve them in the ideation phase uh, let them build early spikes or feasibility uh, topics um, and often my, my experience is also like if you give developers or the product team enough space to like hey you, i won't give you like exact tickets figure something meaningful out to do 
I think you're oftentimes surprised by how meaningful this work then actually is compared to this day-to-day busyness people get stuck in. Yes, and of course, like, um, I mean, you mentioned the development side that, of course, everyone who works in an environment wants to work on meaningful things. um, And especially when it's coming to development, writing tickets, it really makes a difference if everyone really believes that this is like the right thing to do. Yeah. It, at the same time, I would I would also be curious to hear your because what I oftentimes see is like suppose like like a like an endless circle product teams can mm-hmm. feel in like on the one hand developers say like hey we want to be more involved in discovery we don't just want to be the ticket monkeys yeah. but when it's then time to like hey come join me for the interview join me for the ideation like oh no I would rather like to write code why do I have to join and they're like okay <laughs> thanks I guess um, yeah, I mean, uh, what you're referring to is, um, is is very broad. I mean, like, I have the same op- observations. Um, and, I mean, this is something where I would see it's a cultural change, and cultural changes in companies can take can take months, uh, up to years, yeah. right? And it's going to be the long path. And, of course, you might say that, okay, in a startup, you know, like, we're all flexible and dynamic, but still, it's a cultural change and you need to prepare for that one. And you make it very, very slowly in order to bring the development team stronger into, um, let's say, the, the discovery. Yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, one thing that you mentioned is um, very interesting. Um, and I think this is like also one of the first uh, recommendations that I give to the team when they ask me, like, okay, how can I get started in, in discovery? I say, like, okay, like get rid of the responsibility to keep your development team busy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had this mantra for, let's say, the first five years of my career. Like, like if someone is not like working on a specific ticket right now, it's going to be like the worst thing that can ever happen. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, you know, like just like chasing for, okay, I need some specs. I need to have something, you know, like fitting up the backlog just in order to make sure that that, that, that the people are actually like writing code. Yeah. Um, but I learned over time that, um, and one thing that um, made me very curious about that one was um, the topic of A-B testing. Mm-hmm. I think we also talked about that one. Um, I mean, when you conduct A-B tests, you have like a list of things that you want to test. Yeah. And in that list of tests, my experience is that like let's say one out of 10 features get a significant uplift. Yeah. Which also means that probably nine features that I've creating are like, doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Like it's a, it's a little bit simplified. Of course, I know the word is more complex. Um, And this brought me to the perspective, okay, just because it's a, a B testing backlog um, and not a, like, let's say full development backlog. Mm -hmm. Why? Does this really make that that of a difference? And this brought me also to the perspective that, okay, let's rather not build more, but rather build, build the right thing and create the same output. Yeah. Um, outcome, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did the mistake myself. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what, is the, what is your experience there? Like, is that uh, something that sounds familiar? Because I think you've worked, you've worked at uh, Conversionskraft, yeah. so you've worked a lot into the A-B testing field. Yeah. Is that also something that, that sounds right to you? Or is it like, okay, no, 
it's definitely not the right way to go. I think that's, I mean, for, for me, obviously the work with, with Kommissionskraft was an eye-opener. Building an A-B testing tool within an A-B testing agency certainly was very meta when it came to that point. And I thought, I considered myself to be like fairly knowledgeable about A-B testing, but of course, like working with actual experts who don't do like anything else, uh, like certainly broadened my horizon and made me even more aware of like how much, like how much A-B testing I did in my career actually was was crap, right? It was actually maybe I only try to avoid a conflict with a colleague like hey okay let's just A-B test let's let let the data speak but like if you look at it what, what <laughs> yeah. would actually make a good A-B test it was a complete a complete joke right and we shouldn't have yeah. probably been allowed to run this A-B test like uh, famously yeah. button colors right all that shit <laughs> um, but of yeah. course the, the the big problem then is and for many companies so, uh, I think that's also the, the, the problem with like lots of um companies only scratching the surface and not knowing their toolbox, so to say, to deploy for product discovery is, oh, A-B testing, that's the holy grail for making data-driven decisions. We will now use A-B testing. Only to come to the realization that they don't have the, and they might do A-B test and then they see like, oh, 29 versus 25 conversions. So 29 has one, boom, data-driven decision-making. <laughs> and um, th I think the problem here is then if you, if you pull the plug, so to say, and tell them, look, you don't have the traffic to run A-B tests, which means like all those data is, insignificant and meaningless and those activities are also meaningless exactly. then it's like yeah. oh okay but which does that mean we don't we can't do like data informed data driven decision making it's like you probably at least you can't do it relying on a b testing data so um especially in b2b then it's like okay mm. focus on qualitative right which brings us back to this yeah. idea of are you able to interact with your customers properly and don't like sit down with them show them a feature and like so you like this feature right uh this is not what i mean by qualitative data um, I think it's the, that's important. I think people can like fall for the shiny object syndrome and talk about oh, A/B testing. This is great, um, but if you do the homework and like look beyond, look behind the, the curtain, like oh, okay, this is not something feasible for us. Um, I had that. Although a friend of mine worked in a company, and his his goal was to optimize the checkout. So naturally, he started to run A/B tests. Um, but then I, I sent him a link to like one of those simple A/B testing duration calculators, and he was like, "Really? My test would have to run for four months." This doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah, you shouldn't be running an A-B test here. Um, and I think I like this one analogy I once heard um, from, uh, I think in the podcast from Drift, this this chatbot company. And there they told about, look, we also don't have tons of traffic in our lead gen pages. And we deploy this principle of like doing the big swings, right? Whenever we don't have enough traffic, we just try to create the biggest contrast possible and ship it and try to stay with our ears close to the ground and sense the qualitative feedback we get from customers and people i think this is an, an yeah. important a good approach like if you can't do the quantitative a b testing uh be bold and make sure to to listen i mean as, as you said there's uh, tons of other possibilities in order to get started and to get you know like data into your um decision making process mm -hmm. so it doesn't need to be quantitative data it could be qualitative data it could be externally generated yeah. data uh, what i found out was that all the tests were running fine that created a real impact for the customer mm -hmm. and really ma made them like differently. Um, people typically find buttons, right? Uh, yeah. Most of the time, at least nowadays. But let's get quickly back again to, yeah. to what you said in order to get started. And I think it's very, very important to emphasize this one is Ideally, you're going to back yourself, first of all, with information, mm -hmm. which is like the, the first part to say like, okay, and you mentioned that you go into the validation process first. And I think this is very smart to not try to look 
into the future right now, but first of all, look back into the history and see, okay, what have we done so far? Mm. What do we know about the impact that we've created? Um, and then validating the, the, the features that you shipped in order to really start the discussion with the team members to also, you know, like bring them onto the journey about like, hey guys, let's stop, wait for a second. Let's evaluate if what we're building here is the right thing. Mm. Um, and what you also mentioned is that ideally you're going to have KPIs. Um, KPIs only make sense if you have enough traffic. Mm -hmm. But the moment if you don't have any KPIs, you can still move to qualitative interviews um, and going that way. Yeah. Um, what is your experience when you suggest this kind of qualitative feedback um, analysis there from, from your work? Like... What are the hurdles that you see um, start when people want to start with this? I mean, the, the the biggest hurdle is in terms of the qualitative interaction with customers is really like people think they know how to talk to customers because they are comfortable. Um, but when you hear them talk to customers or the the the, the kind of mm -hmm. questions they ask, you quickly realize, oh, you might get some insights out of that, but those are not actual valid insights, right? Like all those like research homework you oftentimes talk about like leading questions and not influencing mm -hmm. people no guiding questions no hypothetical questions all that sort of stuff it's like it's basically whenever people try to do that without any proper guidance they pre probably fall back to any of these ways of talking and questioning people and i think this is the like those those seemingly fundamental basics are oftentimes mm -hmm. i see as the biggest hurdle people don't know how to actually craft an interview and talk to customers without pushing them in a predetermined direction and falling for confirmation bias. How, what would you recommend maybe as a book or some other sources? Mm -hmm. Do you have anything on top of your mind that really helped you to yeah. like start learning about asking the right questions? Yeah. I have, I have one book, which is sort of my Bible and I have to try to have to look it up. Um, my main book uh, is from Tomer Sharon. And mm -hmm. he has written a book, which is called, uh, because I can't see my bookshelf right now. So it's probably, uh, I think it's Validating Product Ideas Through Lean User Research. I know very buzzwordy, mm -hmm. um, but very, very good book from Thomas Sharon. This is really good, mm -hmm. uh, which is really like a comprehensive collection um, of, of, of techniques, how to deploy certain techniques. And mm -hmm. another book, which is a bit more concise, uh, is from Erica Hall called Just Enough Research. So those are typically my two go-to resources I recommend for people getting trying to up their own research skills. And I think it totally makes sense to read that one. I mean, the, the cool thing about interviews that I like is I think it's a f one of the few situations in life where you can be totally stupid <laughs> and you can generate value out of your stupidity. Yeah. Right? So you can just like sit there and ask questions yeah. like, When was the last time that you've done that one? Mm. Okay, why have you done that one? Yeah. Okay, explain me a little bit more. How do you do that? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And it's really, yeah, like, the, the more you let the other side speak, the more value you get out of that one. Yeah. 
and of course, like incorporating what you, what you mentioned, the um, hypothetical questions yeah. or leading questions or whatever. I mean, like it's very easy to fall in love with your own ideas and then yeah. <laughs> get stuck with, you know, like trying to push that person to your idea. So you yeah. <laughs> you, you feel great about it. Right? Absolutely. And this is like one of my main, yeah. one of my small like recommendations I always give to people, whether it's like initial interviews or whether it's prototype interviews, try to let the person who is the most like removed or disconnected from the actual solution or product do the interview because there are like more emotionalities is, is resolved yeah. right i mean for me i remember it was super hard whenever i had to take the the back seat in an interview and well the where the note taker this was like frustrating i was like almost breaking the notepad because i was like so shaking in my chair <laughs> like impatient like why can't he find the button this is not right um all that sort of situations <laughs> But it's super healthy to not be that guy or that person doing the interview when you're in that yeah. mind. Yeah, this, and this is also something that I sometimes recommend also. Um, I mean, you mentioned that the interview questions itself is, is a big hurdle for people. I even found out that some, even product managers sometimes think, okay, you know, like it's very time consuming. I don't have time for that one. Yeah. I'm not going to get enough value out of this one. And I think in my like last... Uh, 10 years of doing user research and talking to people, I figured out that I've never been in a interview situation where I never got this kind of like enlightening moment. Yeah. I said like, okay, I never thought about it. I was so sure that this user experience is the greatest thing Absolutely. ever. And the usability is so <laughs> amazing. You can't really fail. And then you got this person and you're like, He's really not getting. Yeah. Need to scroll. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's, <laughs> we're living in 2020, so you know, yeah. scrolling is normal. Like, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's something that that um, that just like for 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 being there is so getting gaining so much insight. Yeah. Um. Yeah, sounds good. Um. Let's talk a little bit about the um culture and culture changes mm -hmm. that you need to push forward if you want to make a change there and going from like the output orientation to outcome orientation with a high focus on the impact as well. Mm -hmm. um, what is your take on that? How should you start doing that? I think that, um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think I say what I see that for, for most product teams like let's say you're a product team you're a product manager and you agree to this basic principle of product discovery you know all the tools and all that stuff you no longer blow user interviews um but still the goals your team um the the goals which get set for a team uh, are, are named uh launch mvp by april 21st and the the roadmap your your company uses to align the product teams still shows various phases of product development lined up as a Gantt chart then basically all the discovery work you're doing is just like alibi discovery, right? So you give them a certain amount of time to talk to users and do all that stuff, but ultimately you have to deliver this one solution which is already planned at a given point in time. So I believe that the biggest lever to actually create any kind of change is to, before I think before, even before you start equipping individuals with the, the tools and techniques to do discovery, it's like to, to revisit the way you set goals and plan your company's roadmap. Um, because if you still, if you if you focus on output metrics for a team, either even output metrics as like ship a feature or just tell them to increase revenue and already like demand, like trying to battle this uncertainty with like being more 
explicit about when a feature will be shipped, I think oh, like it doesn't make any sense or it will be a waste of time. So I would really recommend revisiting those aspects of product planning and product goal setting first in order to cre actually create an actual permanent or sustainable shift there. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, in order to do that one, you should ideally prove that you're right. Don't you? you? I mean, like, you mean the, the, the team has to prove that they are right, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, like, um, I mean, you can get, 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 go there as a product person and say, like, okay, guys, you know, Gantt diagrams or hard deadlines yeah. for launching an MVP is just like the wrong thing to do. Let's first of all break that one up. And I believe that many people say, like, okay, why, why, why should you be right? Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that might be true. But I, I would say, I mean, then like, of course it's a chicken and egg discussion, right? Like, what has to come first? Yeah. And at least I would like, to, I would like to think that, um, like those people making the ultimate calls on how roadmaps are crafted and goals are set, which is oftentimes management or C level, whatever you want to call it, I think those people should be those uh, should be responsible for taking the first step. And I think trust should come before the evidence part. Uh, that's my what I like to believe in, right? That people say like, okay, um, I trust that what you will be do with this additional time or freedom will go in the right direction. And mm -hmm. um, you don't just have to hard earn it yourself by putting in the extra hours of making squeezing in discovery next to your existing delivery work. Um, so let's give that a, uh, give that a try because I believe that this creates um, even then a more different environment, right? Uh, for for the product team than trying to look at that. So I totally get your point. Uh, and again, maybe I'm a bit too romantic on that one. I think this is, would be the more, let's say, maybe more healthy approach or the way approach I would like more companies to take um, to take the first step from a management perspective and grant this autonomy for teams to fill the space. No. Yeah, I mean, um, for me, it's it has a couple of dimensions. So... First of all, what I work for me at least, uh, and for, for some of the people that I was working with, is just like, first of all, to not ask for doing research, but rather just like start right away. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't need that much time in order to start get knowledgeable on different topics and dive deeper into your area of expertise, mm -hmm. right? I mean, take, take half an hour a day watching your um, analytics KPIs to see what's happening there. Mm -hmm. Take half an hour a day to just like Google something about market studies that represents the target groups and so on and so further. Mm -hmm. um, so like this market research, this external research first. Exactly. Yeah. Take half an hour to talk to your customer service um, person to really understand what the major issues are, just in order to get enough knowledge. Um, because what, what I see as well is, and this is like something where I meant like multiple dimensions is I had a couple of situations where product people came to me and said like, I want to do more strategy. Yeah. And I said like, okay, why should you be, why, sh why should you be able to do a product strategy? So like, yeah, right. So I see like before you haven't done your discovery, you're not going to be really good at strategy because you don't know anything about your company or your, your target group or your customers. I mean, like, when is the last time that you talk to them? Mm -hmm. So it's going to be very, very hard to to frame that one. And that's true. I said, now bring yourself into the position of the, let's say, C-level, mm -hmm. which, like, grants you this access. Like, okay, I mean, the C-level 
they probably often don't do it in a, you know, like framed research approach. They're like, okay, I'm going to, you know, like learn about my customers, but they're on the front line. So they are doing implicit research day in, day out. They having all the suppliers and customers on their phone with the biggest problems on top of the table. So they know what's wrong and not wrong. They might not do it in the best, like structured way and more sophisticated way. Um, but what we found out is that you first of all need to back yourself with tons of knowledge. And the moment you exceed the knowledge of your, your boss in these terms, everything related to product, then you get enough room. Mm -hmm. and then the people who trust you, okay, that guy really knows what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and, and to be honest, like, like my experience, it's in some cases gets really um, infectious. So um, we work on a project where a product manager from IU, like in this time, we really had, you know, like love time for research. Mm -hmm. um, and we gathered all this kind of knowledge. And over time, this kind of like, hey, I'm going to tell you how my business works, moved over to, I need to ask that guy because he did all this research. He can give me that answer. Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly the product manager not became a, um, um, suddenly the product manager became the source of knowledge and the source of information because he had the best ones. Mm -hmm. And this also was just like then from going from there in a very easy way to then start to, to, to steer the roadmap in a good way. So like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to do this first. Because this is the output or outcome that I believe is going to be generated out of it, and then we're going to get there. Yeah. Um, but but I totally also agree to what you said that, and I think both needs to come in parallel. You need yeah. to start the discussions about your core mechanics on how your product is being created. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not able to change these mechanics, all your kind of like starting effort will be will be broken or yeah. like you, you you can't really use that in a full, full space then. Mm -hmm. so um yeah i mean starting on both sides starting the discussion yeah. but on the other side proving that you are actually having more insights than everyone else yeah. that then help the company it's probably a very very good way to go yeah absolutely and i mean i mean probably also making clear that like if c-level management like like is the first one to put in this trust like okay now you get some autonomy to do some discovery work or exploration work to not just like see it as a trap and like you know that those people you're tasking are might be a bit might be lacking some practical experience with the actual tools and then yes. once they yeah. figure like look i told you back to the deliv delivery focus boom exactly. uh, to be aware like yeah. hey this takes time that they, they need to grow and practice into this role and this responsibility um exactly Re interesting trap. research is The research is just like not, nothing that you can pull off right away. You need training for that one. I mean, it's like writing a ticket, right? Your yeah. first ticket that you wrote probably in product management were pretty shitty. <laughs> um, and over time, over time, you learn, you yeah. know, like what is the right information? What are the different angles that you need to take yeah. a look at? But this takes a little time. Absolutely. And of course, you can't just like say like, I'm doing research now. And then you read a lot of data and then you're like, now I know everything. <laughs> it's, it's something that you, that, you, that you really need to train. Yeah. yeah something um, I once experienced in one company was uh, that... Uh, part of a bigger initiative that the user research department sponsored like set up an internal competition so to say within a given period like who which product manager could do the most user interviews and this was fun because it was like obviously it's output focused but like research as you said is one of these things the more you do it's like a muscle right you have to train it the more you do it the, the more you realize and grow and this was so fun because it created like a competitive um, yeah really competitive competition like okay how many user interactions can I get to how many people can I talk Uh, this was a really super fun um, experience. 
this sounds this sounds really great, and this is like also why I think that the output metrics um, can matter because they are. Um, I mean, it's easy to follow. Yeah. Um, it's something that maybe not as a key metric is then something that you should judge something on or make decisions on. Yeah. But at least it can facilitate the right culture yeah. and going into the right direction. That's true. And then moving away from from this one. Yeah. So. Um, just in order to recap everything that we've discussed so far, um, for product management or for creating better product, it's quite important to focus on outcomes and impacts rather than outputs. I think this is something that yeah. we understood. Um, in order to get going, in order to be more outcome-driven, um, a good way to start is to really understand the problem space in depth mm -hmm. by either going into qualitative or quantitative methods to just like gather information yeah. um, and take it from take it from there. Um, incorporating this one into your decision-making process for which kind of feature to develop next. Ideally, you're going to develop or validate with more or less even the same principles yeah. the impact that you've created because even if you believe that there's an impact, it doesn't need to, need to be really that case yeah. right um and then we learned as well that you ideally not only focusing on getting enough room make yourself knowledgeable mm -hmm. but also starting the discussion within companies to change what more or less like keeps this let's say from business goal to feature idea to implementation yeah. process but rather than from business goal to to research, to research, feature idea, to to validation, implementation, and so on. So mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Tim. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Um, I um, yeah, I mean, you're um, as I said, you're a consultant and 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 coach, and um, I think you have a very great uh, newsletter. So if you wanna wanna get more insights from Tim and his experience, uh, go to herbic.co. Um, I can really recommend you to to follow him um, and read his blog post. Super interesting, and um, yeah, I hope that we were able to give you some insights on how to do better products, how to create better products, and um, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating.